This episode contains references to accounts of domestic and sexual violence, violence against women in particular, and language that is not suitable for listeners under 18 years of age. We also discuss coercive control. Please use caution when listening. Last week, we finally got into the subject for which this podcast is named, Operation Wildfire. Operation Wildfire was the act of a desperate woman, the act of someone who no longer has faith in her justice system to protect victims from her abuser, the act of someone who is powerless to stop someone else from getting hurt. Some would argue that she acted recklessly. Others would argue that she was bold and brave. One reason the courts didn't believe Kara about Jim's violence is because she made herself less credible by associating with his other victims. Her becoming friends with Kristen, going on a cruise with Kristen and Amber, and continuing to go out of her way to warn his girlfriends about his behavior all gave rise to questions about her truthfulness. Welcome to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. This is episode 10, Eureka! If you're just joining us, we recommend you go back and start listening from episode one. The idea that by associating with each other, they've hurt their cases is a harsh reality. It not only calls Kara's case against Jim into question, but all of these women's cases. It allows Jim to continue to say, these women are just crazy bitches who are all obsessed with him. Because we already don't believe women, more women compounded together unfortunately doesn't mean more credibility. It means more suspicion. Imagine if a group of men all alleged someone was violent. Instant credibility. But multiple women claiming a man is violent? Instantly, everyone starts saying, witch hunt. When you're dealing with an unreliable witness or one whose credibility has been attacked or what we would call, quote, impeached in a court of law, You've got to try to rehabilitate them. You can do that through introducing corroborating statements. Maybe you have the ability to put on character evidence for truthfulness. That's one of the exceptions to the no character evidence rule, which we talk about extensively in season one. Or, as we have here, you can put on a witness to testify to their independent experiences untainted by the corruption of having worked as a group, which is the primary source for having attacked the other witness's credibility in this case. So, Arkansas. (laughs) The crazy thing about the Arkansas case is that Kristen and Kara have known about it for a really long time. It's not really clear to us how they came to know about it, but they put it on the flyer. Right. And it's only a police report. Right. Kristen spent years looking for this person, and she was told when she called the Eureka Springs Police Department that you have to be a lawyer to get the full report, because they had a partial report that did not include the name of of the survivor. It was, like, anonymized. Right. So they had that one. Right. But they never had the name. They never had the contact information for this person. They could never find who it was. And it would have been incredibly helpful for Kara in defending against Jim's defamation suit, possibly to have this person if it did go to trial. We were able to find it. We got the full thing. Actually, with Kristen's help, randomly. Yeah, so what's weird about this, too, is that, like, Kristen tried for a long time to get the full report, and they kept telling her that it had to be a lawyer that would request it, which is untrue. I don't know why they would say that to her. So we requested it and we got the report. And after we did, she went back and tried again and got it independent of us. She just, I mean, dogged about getting it. So once once she knew that we were able to get it, she tried again, got it. And she was able to locate what she believed to be was, was this individual. We had three or four people narrowed it down to that we thought it was. And she was able to ultimately find who it was. And we contacted her. She didn't ever contact her. Right. Kristen didn't reach out to her. She Mm. just gave us the info. Yeah. None of the survivors have ever talked to this person. Yep. I've sent her a message on Facebook randomly. And it was almost instantly that she responded. I I asked her, I was like, did you ever know Jim Lumen? And the message I got back was, yes, 
he is a monster. So the memory was quite fresh. I mean, it was an instant response almost. Yeah, and like I feel like you and I always go into people's other messages, so like they might not even see right, it because we're yeah we're sending messages without making friend requests to strangers to strangers all the time. It's fine. We're not weird. <laughs> we're just trying to find people who like not just for the podcast, but for many of our yeah. projects, we need community input. Yes, yeah, so we look for people a lot. But the thing that's so remarkable about this person is the recall. Yeah, it was, was still visceral. Very visceral. And she wanted to share. She really wanted to share. And so let's quickly read what the police report says into the record of the podcast. Absolutely. And then we will hear from her. So the full police report from the Eureka Springs Police Department states that the date and time of the incident report was March 19th, 1997. The type of incident was a domestic battery, third degree, and it happened at the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. The method of attack says suspect bit, spanked, and assaulted victim. The description of the weapon is mouth, belt, and hands. It lists the suspect's name as James Carol Lumen II, and the complainant is a woman named Carissa. And here's the narrative. On Wednesday, March 19, 1997, at 9.15 a.m., Officers Fortenberry Jacobs and I were dispatched to the Crescent Hotel on a report of a hysterical woman in the lobby. I have issues with that right out of the gate. Again, where it's 1997. Fortenberry and Jacobs arrived first and found the woman who identified herself as Carissa. She said her boyfriend had assaulted her in room 218 at 7 a.m. this morning after she tried to get him out of bed. She said he woke up angry and hit her very hard in the lower back. She said he then pulled her onto the bed and began pushing her face into the bed when she tried to scream. She said he then bit her nose and stuck his fingers down her throat, telling her to quit screaming. She said he also pulled her bottom lip to the point of bleeding and bit her on her right forearm. She said he then took off his belt and hit her on the butt and legs five to six times, leaving marks on both. She said she finally got out of the room and into the lobby to get help. Mr. Lumen was arrested for domestic battery, third degree, class A misdemeanor, and transported to the Carroll County Sheriff's Office. Mr. Lumen was taken before Judge Kent Coxie in Berryville at 4.30 p.m. and given a bond of $1,000 and a court date of April 18, 1997, in Eureka Springs. It appears that they, the officers also took Polaroids of the victim, and those are in her file. Here's the affidavit of probable cause. And this court, this case was in the municipal court in the city of Eureka Springs. So it wasn't even in like a district court for the state. This was a municipal issue. So we're going to play the recording of our interview with her now. My name is Carissa. And how did you know Jim Lumen? Um, I met him. Oh, yeah, this is a whole... Wow, um, I met him at work. And um, started dating him probably the day I started. Met, I met him and actually moved some of my stuff into him cause, uh, into his apartment because I had been... Because we'd been spending so much time together really quick. I was young. I was stupid. And I moved in really quick. <laughs> Where were you guys working at the time? Um, He was a car salesman or worked at some dealership if I remember correctly and I was working at a um at a club in Tulsa do you know what dealership he was working at huh Mm, no I don't remember that's okay. I knew he was like a car salesman, and there was a bunch of dealerships around it. It was like one of the big guys, like Ford or Toyota or something. Gotcha. And that was in Tulsa? Yeah. And what was the name of the club that you worked at? Um, uh, you know, I don't know if it was Lady Godiva's. Or 
I don't know which one it was, to be honest with you. I didn't do it for very long, and I've kind of put that whole life out of my mind. Sure. So um, I, I believe at the time I met him, I was 19. Okay. He, he came in with a bunch of his friends one night, I believe. Kind of like, you know, guys night. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, they always press, well, can we get your number? Can we take you home? Of course, you always say no. And he just came in, and he was just really, like, polite and charming, and he wasn't trying to get me to go home with him. And he's like, no, what I really want is just take you out to lunch. And I'm like, hmm, you know? Like an idiot, because I'm only 19, and I didn't understand the world I was playing in, pretty much. And uh, so I I was like, yeah. And uh, he was just really charming, and he took me out, and... You know, he never pressed anything, and he was just, you know, sweet. Do you remember where Funny. you had your first date, your first lunch date at? Um, no, it was Italian or something. It wasn't. It wasn't like a. Like, I could tell you every detail of that night, but I can't tell you all the details that led up to it, yeah, if that, that makes, makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, well, so how long were you guys dating before you took the trip to Arkansas? A um, couple months. Couple of yeah, months. I mean, I had I didn't have all my stuff there, but um, I had quite a bit of my stuff there. Uh, well, I wouldn't say quite a bit, but I had enough. I had clothes and, you know, stuff that you would need to wake up and go to work. I mean, I'd been spending the night over there, you know, probably three or four nights a week at least. And, uh, I mean, it was just good. It was normal. We, you know, we never fought. It was, um, it was really good until it wasn't. <laughs> it was, it, it was fun. It was, he, he was, he liked his job. I remember that. I remember he really enjoyed it. He was doing really well, and I was making good money, and we were just having fun. And we went out to Arkansas to celebrate his birthday, I believe. Did you know um, his son or his ex-wife, Dawn? No. Did he mention that? I didn't even know he had a son. I knew, and I'm going to take that back. I knew he had been married and that he didn't like to talk about it. And one time we drove out into the country and I don't know if it was a family member or somebody, but he said, I think it was like his brother or sister lived there. But I think later it was probably he drove me by his ex-wife's house, I think. I don't know. But that's just kind of what I got when I when some people were telling me stuff a couple years later. Hmm. I don't know, but he said it was, it was. I think maybe it was. He said it was his mom's, but I thought it was really weird because we didn't stop. Right. Yeah, that is unusual. <laughs> Hi, there's my mom's house. Babe. Um. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> right. So before the that. You were you guys moved really quickly, right? From just yeah. this date to moving in with him, and then yeah. you guys go to Arkansas, and yeah, is that the first to time to celebrate something? I think it was his birthday, or his birthday was like next week or something. Yeah, and, and I had to be at work the next day, so we just went up there for the night. And so, was that the first time any you got any indication that something wasn't quite right? No. We didn't fight. Yeah. But I also didn't want to, not because I couldn't argue with him because I'm pretty feisty. Um, I just knew I didn't want to. I, I, I can't explain it. You just, it's just one of those people you look at and you're like, no, nah, I don't feel like being feisty with this one. I can't, you just didn't. I don't know. I mean, that's why we didn't fight. It's because I just, okay. I was just like, okay. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think lots of women probably make those calculations every single day in their lives of like, am I going to, uh, you know, say something here? Or am I just going to let it lie and live, you know? Tragic. Yeah. To, 
Exactly. To me, Jimmy was never serious. I was there for my own reasons. And um, I had my own issues going on at the time. I had a child myself that was very young that I was away from at the time I knew him. And so he was never going to be serious. He was always just fun for me. I, that's why I didn't like move all my stuff and I just moved in enough to, you know, wake up the next day. So I had some comfort. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, would you guys go driving around like quite a bit? Was that a regular activity for you guys? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I remember we would go out to the country and then it's so weird. I thought I would remember every detail of everything about him, but I just, yeah, I've been so many years since I thought about it, and and it's not something I like to think about, to tell you the truth. And, you know, I've just, I've forgotten a lot of the stuff. But, yeah, I think we did drive around. We went out to the country a few times and um, made the drive to Arkansas. So that was, like, normal. Yeah, I would say it was normal. Yeah. And, you know, I have the incident report. I've been able to get that. Um, as part of a public record with from the police, um, and so I know some of what happened. So why don't you just tell me what you can remember? Um, he wanted to stay in a haunted place. The whole thing was it was. I'm pretty sure it was his birthday, or it was going to be his birthday, or some type of celebration. Anyways, we went up there. We got up there six or seven that night. And we went to a couple of bars, but he got us a hotel in this place that used to be like an asylum or something. Crescent? He, he, huh? I think it was a Crescent. Yeah, some haunted hotel. It was a uh, deal to him that it used to be an asylum? Yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be haunted. Ooh, we're going to go on this haunted thing, you know? Yeah. I don't know, I was just like, cool. Because <laughs> that's kind of how I was about everything. Sure, let's do it. And um, we went out, we went out to the, um, we ate, we stopped at a couple of bars. We were drinking a little bit, but I mean, we were walking around. It was still kind of chilly at night. And um, we got home, we got back to the room fairly early. We didn't shut down the bars or anything. It, it says then that you reported that he grabbed you by the throat. The night, before yeah yeah but it was like it wasn't it was scary but it wasn't i don't know this sounds so bad but it wasn't like he was like at the time i didn't take it as something i needed to be fearful of it was almost like he was playing around a little too rough if that makes sense no that makes a lot of sense yeah um and also you know i think i just want to say this that I called you, I, I contacted you out of the blue today. You don't know me from Adam. And I'm asking you to tell me one of the most traumatic things that's ever happened to you. So like, uh, I just want to, like, I want to name that and say that I appreciate your candor and your vulnerability with us because um, I think it's important. And then like another thing I just want to say to you is I, you don't have to make any excuses <laughs> to us for anything that you chose to do or not do with Mr. Loom. And I mean, we've been working with survivors now for about a year and we have seen all kinds of different things. And we know that um, experts who provide services to domestic violence survivors have told us, you know, survivors, they know how to survive. They, they take whatever actions are required to survive. And you, so you, I just want to say like, there's no, you don't have to rationalize anything with us because we've seen it all. Um, but so that being said, I guess what, what, what wound up causing the big, the big fight? What happened after you guys went to bed? Nothing. That's when we went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I had to get to work. We had a three hour drive ahead of us. I woke up, I don't know, minus. They were still serving breakfast downstairs for a little bit. So I tried to get him up and he was like, I'll wake up in a little bit. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go downstairs and have breakfast. And I went downstairs, and they were closing up their breakfast buffet or whatever they were doing. And I called him from the phone, from the lobby. And I was like, hey, 
if you want breakfast, you better get up and get it because they're about to close it down. And, uh, and he said, yeah. He said, come on up and get ready with me and we'll go down and we'll have breakfast together and then we'll hit the road. And I was like, cool. So I hung up the phone in the lobby, in the lobby there where where the front desk is, is the phone I used, and I went back up. It's like a grand staircase there. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but it's this big, it's a big staircase. Like out of a movie or something, like out of an old movie, it's a big staircase. And, um, sorry, I didn't think I would be emotional about it all these years later. Yeah, take your time, take your time. You know, there's a moment before every bad thing in life where you know it. And sometimes you only have that split second, but you know that this is going to be bad. But usually you're not in tune with your instincts or whatever. Then you go ahead and you take that step off that cliff or you walk in that door. But you know that there's that moment. There's always that moment where whatever you call it, your guardian angels, your sixth sense, whatever that tells you, uh-uh, don't go in there. And so I walked up the stairs and he, and the door was locked. So I knocked, I'm like, it's me, I'm here. And he opened the door and there was that split second. He was standing in the doorway and that inner voice said, uh-uh, don't go in there. And of course I pushed it aside and walked in. And that's when it started. It was that morning. It wasn't the night before. Okay. Yeah. So when it started, as soon as I walked in. Yeah. Do you recall, I guess, when it was finally over, you know, what happened when he was, when he was done being violent with you? What, what was the next thing that happened? Well, um, once I caught my breath, um, I think, you know, it's funny. I always believe that it's when I looked at him with every type of honesty and truth that I could muster. And I looked right at him and I told him I loved him. That's when he stopped. It's weird to say that, but that's what it took. It took me actually not fighting him and not fighting back and I think that's what saved my life if you want to know the truth because <laughs> I thought I was going to die there were several times I, I think I passed out he choked me out his fist in, in my face and just kind of some really weird shit and I just I thought I was going to die and so I knew if I had fought back he would have definitely crossed the line and I'm surprised he's not wanted for murder under investigation for murder because there's nothing in his soul <laughs> This man goes to a place where he has no soul. And I'm surprised that he hasn't killed a few along the way. I'm really shocked that nobody's caught him. Because I that's why I was looking him up. I wanted to see if they got him for murder. Because I, I thought that the only reason I lived was because, I mean, it was a lie. But with all this power and everything in my soul that I could possibly muster and all the kindness and warmth and honesty that I could push out, I told him I loved him and that's when he stopped. So. And everything was normal. And he was like, get up, wash up, let's go eat breakfast. Wow. <laughs> I'm black and blue, there's blood everywhere in the room. I, I looked in the mirror, I couldn't wash up. Like, my lip is torn in my face, and there was no way I could clean up. But I wasn't going to argue with him, so I just cut the bag and did my best, you know? And then he's like, you ready for breakfast? And I'm like, sure. Let's go. Everything's fine. Yeah. When did you call police? <laughs> I, I had to get out of that room if I was going to live. So we walked down that beautiful... I don't know why that staircase, stupidest thing, right? We walked down that staircase, and whew, we walked down the staircase, and there was this little angel, paramedic, this little, I don't know, at the time she was older, so I was 18 or whatever, so she was like probably in her 40s, you know, I a few things different then, but... This little angel of a paramedic. She was the first person I saw. And I grabbed her. And I put this 
I swear she was like maybe 4'11". She was tiny, short, beautiful. Short hair, tough as nails. I didn't know that then she was just a body and I put her in between me and him. And I said, somebody help me, please. Man, she went into action like she was waiting all day to be there. She, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's a big guy. And this little short-haired paramedic got right up. You stand back. You don't touch her. And he was looking at her like he didn't know whether to be afraid of her or squash her. You know, he was just in shock. And he tried to get around her. And she just got right in front of him. And she hollered over to the desk, you call the cops. I mean, she was just freaking nailed it. And she's, she's my angel. She just happened to be there, Carissa? Like, she was standing right there. But she was a she was there on a different call? Like, she was a... No. She was there for private reasons. She was normally dressed in regular clothes. Oh, wow. So and I found out she was a you. paramedic later. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So. Angels, man. Angels are <laughs> Yes. Yeah, My little angel. I never saw her since. I've never seen her before. But she was literally, she, like, Jimmy's this big monster, and she's a little tiny thing, little slender, tiny thing, and she was like, you back up. I, I just remember her getting her finger and pointing right in his face. You're not going to hit me. You're not going to touch me. You're not going to touch her again. Like, she, she was... Like, she had just no fear. She had no fear. And I knew I was going to be fine. I knew I was going to be okay. Wow. That's, I mean, yeah, I have goosebumps. It's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> That's it's wild to hear all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the police obviously arrived and you made a report to them. Um, yeah. And they arrested him. And how, so did you leave him in Arkansas and go back to Tulsa or, or what happened after that? I did. I did. I think I even paid for a cab to take me from Arkansas to Tulsa. I, I didn't, yeah. I, was, I didn't ever want to see him again. I got a police escort to get out my stuff, but I didn't need one because he wasn't there. He had set my stuff outside. I don't think I ever actually laid eyes on him again after that night. Because I never went back to follow up. Um, wow. I never, I never went back to follow up charges. I, I, in in different states, you know, I didn't know this, but like in Colorado, the state will take over the charges. But I guess in Arkansas, the state doesn't take over. If you're not there to follow up, they don't follow up with them. Wow, interesting. And nobody tried from Arkansas. Nobody tried to contact you to try to like encourage you to follow up or anything like that. Uh, back then, I was kind of a hard bird to get a hold of. Yeah, it's not like today where I can Facebook you and be on the phone with you. and Right, and it's not like I was very stable or, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, I think I listed my mom's phone number, which may be the same. No, I think she got a new one about 15 years ago, but, I mean, she pretty much kept the same number. She had four of us kids, so, and I was the youngest, so she was pretty used to being the stable block for a while, you know. So you said you told your mom everything that happened. Yeah. What was that conversation like? Um, my mom's my person. <laughs> you know, I didn't tell her till years later, though. I didn't tell her right away. I actually went back to my baby's daddy's mom's house, stayed there for a while, and then ended up back in Colorado. And it, it was probably years later before I told her what had happened and why I left Tulsa so quickly. So she didn't know right away. I didn't want her to worry or feel guilty because she couldn't protect me, even though I was the one that chose to travel all over the world by myself. You know, I didn't. So I, I didn't tell her for years. Was Jim part of the reason that you left Tulsa? Did you think he was going to come after you? Um, you know, uh, well... No, I don't think he was going to come after me. I think he was done. I don't, I never felt like he was going to stalk me. Or, he didn't know enough about me to stalk me. I wasn't, 
we didn't have that kind of in long talks and all that stuff. It, it wasn't a guy. I told you it wasn't a guy I was going to be serious about. It was just fun. It was sweet and charming and fun. So he didn't know a lot about me, and I didn't know a lot about him. We just spent time together. A minute ago, you said that you had started talking to people after and hearing things about... about yeah, I think I investigated it when I told my mom. I think I had tried to investigate whatever happened to the charges and everything. And I talked to somebody at the police department who said, that's who told me that she was a paramedic. So, but they didn't tell me anything else. So I think they're the ones that told me that the, that the reason um, the charges were never pursued is because I didn't show up. So, and I wasn't, once I got in Colorado around my family and my daughter and everything, I, I had no intention of ever going back to Tulsa. So it was just kind of a, a mute deal. And it probably been 15 years after that before I even like Googled his name to see. And the first thing that popped up on Google was some news report on him. And I'm like, wow, they don't have him for murder yet. I wonder why. Because he has, he's, what do they call it, psychopathic. <laughs> Where they, they don't have a soul. They don't have, like, that thing that makes us human, I guess you would say. He knows how to fake it really well, but deep inside, he doesn't have that thing. It's not a, he doesn't need to hurt. It was, he wasn't mad when he was beating the hell out of me. He wasn't... He was he was doing it because it was like having tea. It was something he enjoyed. Like I don't know how to explain it. But I, when I looked in those eyes and told him I loved him, I knew. I don't know why he stopped either because I don't think it really affected him. I don't think he cared one way or another. Oh, wow! Wow! Like it was just a way to kind of disrupt the what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, because it's kind of weird to say this, but for a lot of it, he had his entire fist in my in my mouth. And big guy, big hands, and that's what ripped the inside of my mouth, and that's why what helped close the scene. There was a lot of blood and stuff. It's because he had his entire, and I, it was choking me. That's how he was choking me. He wasn't grabbing my neck, although he did do that. But my, a lot of the time, he just put his entire fist in my mouth. It was really weird. So when he pull it out is when I would look at him and tell him I loved him so that he would stop. Wow. Have you ever been contacted by any other victims that he had? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, I remember something some girl tried to contact me once regarding him, but I don't think we ever talked. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my life is so different. I've been a, a nurse for almost 15 years. I'm a travel nurse. Like, my life ended up, you know, being decent mom to my daughter and the best I could. And, you know, she turned out pretty good. And, you know, I've just been, that's so long ago, that life that I had, that craziness. It was a long time ago for me so a lot of it I don't think about so I don't but I think someone did try to contact me I'm not sure I don't think I ever talked to him though at the time I don't think I was ready mm. yeah. well we so can't thank it. you enough for sharing that was literally probably one of the most harrowing stories I've ever heard in my life yeah yeah it was it was a it was a moment that's for sure but so, I have I I don't know if you guys believe in guardian angels, but I do. Absolutely. And I think I had one that kept me alive that night. And I really, you know, I, I've said it a couple of times, but there has to be bodies out there. This man is capable of killing. I know that in my heart and soul that he is capable of killing and not thinking twice about it. He is not a good guy and under any circumstances for any reason. He is a bad man through and through. 
and whatever he tries to pretend or fake. It's just a facade. I'll say that you are not the first person to kind of just wonder about that. Like that the, that there have been other women that we've spoken to that are like, I just don't, I, I don't know how, if he hasn't yet, he will, if that makes yes. sense. Um, which is terrifying, right? Yeah. So yeah. I do, so I, I do, I mean, obviously I have the incident report um, that was made on the day that all this occurred. I do want to give you as the, the person who experienced and survived this, the option, if you would like to, to describe it to us, you are more than welcome to, if you would prefer that we just rely on what's in the report and what you've already said, that's fine. But the actual assault, if you want to, to say anything in your own words about it, I do want to give you the chance now to do that, but I don't want you to feel pressured to, if you just aren't up for it. Anything? I think I told you everything I remember. Okay. I, um, there was a lot of, I mean, you have to figure I went up there. I think I was up in that room for like, and it, it felt like an eternity, but at least a couple of hours. I, you know, I, like I said, my memory is kind of fuzzy, but it, I mean, it felt like forever, but it really seemed from the minute I walked in the door until we left, I'm thinking it was two, maybe three hours. And it was, so, I mean, a lot happened in that time, and I'm not sure, you know, I can't tell you all the details. But, like, I remember the the hand being in my mouth is the big one and choking me. Um. But there was, there was more. There was a lot of, um, he would say stuff. I don't remember what he would say, but I remember he would say stuff like, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to kill you. They'll never find your body. There's no one out here looking for you. Nobody even knows you're up here. Like that stuff. And then he would, and then sometimes he would just sit there and just, looked at me it was it was weird and, and I, I can't you know i'm being interested to see what that police report says i don't think i remember other than that part of the the purpose of this podcast is to really illuminate what it's like for survivors to try to get help through the system and i know you know you were just a, a kid you know and it, it sounds like what you basically did was, was say, that's it. I'm going back to my community. I'm done with all of that, um, which I think is probably how I would hand, have handled it as well. Um, but I never danced again. I never, yeah. In a lot of ways, you changed the direction of my life. Get going, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, good yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> not the way I would have done it, but it really did set me on a little bit of a different course. Yeah, that's for sure. Is there anything you would want them to know and understand about like Jim Lumen as a person or getting help from the police or what just what it's like to survive something like this with your intimate partner? Is there anything like final thought you want to provide them? Um, Don't be ashamed. For mistakes you make when you're young and any mistake you make I think you know my thing was that and my mom you know she's just she's an angel in her own right but you know she just always told me that you know whatever bad choices I had made I didn't deserve what happened you know what whatever choice of job I had at the time or how I was living my life it doesn't mean that I deserved what happened did I put myself in a bad situation yeah, maybe, but no matter what or how many mistakes she made, you don't you don't deserve to have. Nobody deserves to have that kind of violence hunt their dreams. Period. And it's not. And I know through not only my mom, but also being on the other side of it as a nurse that takes care of women who are in bad situations. Sometimes, you know, it's you can always start making the right choice now. And, and as long as you're not ashamed and not afraid to talk, then you, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find out what you need through that. I, I kind of caught off guard here, so. 
I don't know if I'm wording that correctly, but... No, that's great. I really think that, um, you know, one of the things, one of the biggest barriers that we always hear from survivors is the shame and the fear that accompanies, like, trying to get help and actually speaking to people about what happened to you is one of the best ways to get help, but it's really hard to do that if you're racked with fear and shame about the situation. And that's why I didn't tell my mom for years. It was because here I was, I was dancing. I was taking on my top for men, which, if you know the way I was raised, like, that was, like, I was raised in a very... <sighs> my parents had a bottle of wine in their cabinet, I think, for six years at one point. Like, they went to work every day type of family. Just, you know? So for me to go and dance and party and all that stuff, they were like, what the hell? <laughs> That's not our little girl, you know? Right? And so I didn't want to follow it. I didn't want to have to stand in court and say, oh, yeah, by the way, I work at your local strip bar, but I didn't want this guy touching me that way, you know? And I didn't want to stand up and say that. I was embarrassed of not just what happened with him, but my whole choice of lifestyle at the time. Yeah. So I think that's really valid. I mean, I think plenty of women have made similar calculations, you know. If you, it's I mean, you're still, I think men that are like Jimmy pick up on that. They pick up on that. They know that you're not going to speak because you're making some bad choices. That's part of why they want you. They know you're not going to cause them. They're not, a guy like Jimmy wouldn't pick me up now. <laughs> you know, because he knows he'd have to go all the way at this point. Because, you know, if I did make it out of there alive, I'd be on the 9 o'clock news. Hey, watch out for this guy. I'd be holding street signs with their, his name on it. Like, uh-uh. I'd be all advocate. <laughs> But back then, I was just a kid making some bad choices, and he knew it. And I, it, guys like Jimmy, they know that. And that's what they pick up, but they know that you're ashamed. They know that you're not in a good place, and they prey on that. And that's why they get away with it, because you don't have the follow-through, and you don't have the stability, and you don't have the courage, and you don't have the experience, and all that stuff that makes you stronger. Because at the time, you're not a survivor. You're still a victim. And they know that. as you guys calling and stuff am I emotional right now absolutely but I mean I feel like hey so 30 years later I got to say something about it yeah. <laughs> you know it yeah. doesn't have to go down in history as the secret thing that happened to you anymore no yeah. yeah that's cool if you think of anything else you want us to know or you just want to point us in the direction of anything else um, don't hesitate to call me okay that'll work Thank you. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you. we're so grateful. I mean, I know this yeah. was hard to talk about, and I'm sure that you are emotionally exhausted after all that. So <laughs> make the yeah. space to just be 
uh, do something to take your mind off of it, but we, we can't thank you enough because we do think it will make a difference bringing this to light. Oh, and okay. Thank, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. It, uh, call me if, if, if I could do anything. So Carissa is dating Jim and those events occur about almost exactly one year before he meets Ember, who you heard about in episode one. Okay, so the timeline would go married to Dawn, divorced from Dawn. Carissa. Carissa. Ember. Ember. Then that we know of, Misty, and so on and so on. So. Yeah, Misty's a 2001 marriage, I think. It's probably fair to say that, like, from. Ember probably wouldn't have known about her. Misty wouldn't have known about her. Nobody would have known about her until Kristen. Right. And I mean, she was an exotic dancer too. And you hear about her talking about like the, like the shame of all of that. And like, just like the social stigma about like, who's going to believe you because you're a stripper. Like, well, I mean, we spoke to someone who will remain unidentified because they didn't want to cooperate and go on the record who said she was giving it away. You can't really trust what she says. Right. Big yikes. Big yikes. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, that individual. Had, Sucks. Had, had that opinion. I mean, yeah, it's just like... But her, her descriptions of it are so visceral, even like 30 years later. Like, just... You can hear the emotion in her voice. I get goosebumps. I had goosebumps the first time she told me. I had goosebumps now the fourth or fifth time listening to that. That part when she starts talking about going into the room, yeah, it's just like I have had those kinds of feelings before. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it didn't end up as bad as this, mm-hmm. but you just get those like, yeah, trust your gut. Yeah, it's a gut feeling, and some people will be like, "That's anxiety," but it's like <laughs> sometimes you know it what? is my anxiety. <laughs> anxiety diagnosable anxiety is useful. <laughs> It is useful. Anxiety is useful, yeah. It's there for a reason. It's there to warn you about things that could happen to you. Maybe not always. It's Sometimes it gets like its antenna gets a little crooked. But like she clearly knew there was something going on with him as soon as he opened the door. Yeah. And this whole thing, I just have to say like, if I had to get back to work and I tried to wake my husband up, to go downstairs to eat because we had to go and he was like nah and then I was like fine I'm gonna go eat by myself and then they're closing up the breakfast buffet and I know he'll be pissed at me if he doesn't eat something before we go (laughs) because the breakfast is free so you've got to call up to the room and be like come on they're closing and him still being like nah come back up here and then we'll then we'll eat. It's like, it's gonna be fucking closed, ass. <laughs> right, like there's like some annoyance, uh, you know, maybe on her part with him. Yeah, and I'm sure it's like, okay, whatever. Like, I ate my eggs, it's gonna be on you. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, you gotta think from the other examples that we have of the stories with these other women... That that may have been, like, part of what originated the anger with him was this, like, you went to breakfast without me kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think it really is that simple with him sometimes. I mean, with Ember, it was like he thought she was in a bad mood. Yep. Or she wasn't appropriately sorry. Like, she was sorry, but not sorry enough. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, or she tried to leave her own house, and he said it wasn't her house, it's my house, and that was it. Yeah, it's just as like, I don't know. That, that, I know that was hard to sit through and listen, but I, we really wanted you to hear that this is this independent account more than, you know, 25-ish years ago. Yeah. That just has been out there. And there are pieces of that assault that we hear refracted in all of these other stories. Like, I think I just said while I was listening to it again, like it's a, it's like a kaleidoscope of all of these different experiences. Like his mood flipping on a dime happened to Kristen, him just going back to normal. As soon as the violence, as soon as like his mood for violence is over, that happened with Amber when he was laying on the bed, talking and watching TV and drinking beer. Mm -hmm. Like we know that these little 
pieces of, of behavior are consistent across all of these people, which for me, yeah. And it just continues to build the credibility of all of these stories. It's like, how would you know to make up that he just went right back to normal afterwards? How would you know to make up that he sticks his fist in your mouth and pulls your lip apart from your face? And they all describe the, the mouth fixation in different, subtly different ways. But I guarantee it's all the same effort at fish hooking. He's getting his, his, I like did it to myself as I said that, but he's like getting his fingers in that mouth to pull away at the lips and the gum and like rip their mouth apart. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but some of like, you know, Ember described it as like pulling at my mouth. She described it as like tearing at my lips, putting his like whole fist in my mouth. Heather talks about it on the night before their wedding and Patsy's bathroom when he comes in and rips her like grabs her by the mouth and pulls her out of the bathroom right it's like there's this it's like you're using the mouth as like a way to drag somebody around it's a very specific and weird thing to do it's not yeah, it's an interesting visual too about like you're not going to talk back to me you're not going to be independent you're not going to have that attitude yeah the this is one of the only times we've heard of him using his fist to choke someone by sticking it all the way in their mouth and his fingers down her throat, which yeah. that part for me, like horror movie status is like 11. Yeah. It's that's like, I cannot help, but like just do it a little bit and see what that's like. And it's like, so like doing it on myself is like very intense. And like the thought of not having control over the, that is fucking terrifying i mean suffocation is like way up there on my ways that i don't want to die it's yeah, like burning alive too. and suffocation drowning are suffocation yeah burning. all of that those yes things. those are the worst <laughs> we all agree <laughs> but like uh to have to not only be struggling to breathe but be fighting against the force of somebody with their with that happening yeah it's like and then this other piece that she talks about where he doesn't have anything in his eyes like there isn't right tisha said something similar about him going heather says it that his eyes go black different person or something yeah that there's no soul there we've heard that from other people like these are things that like they're not the kind of things that you would like get together in a room and gossip about. They're actually things that like happen in the privacy of an, of an event like this in the universe of an event like this, that is like unfabricatable. I mean, maybe I'm just gullible. I'm really gullible because I just believe them. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a faction of people out there that would are going to always question their believability. They'll always disbelieve women because again, like we've talked about this to, if you believe that that happened, you cannot sit idly. If you sit idly and, and just allow that to be the reality that the police didn't follow up and the courts didn't do anything. And that happened to her. And like, you believe that as a baseline, then you're living a life that Colleen and I are living. That is extremely stressful of like, I have to talk about this every fucking waking minute because I need everybody to be as upset as I am. And we need to do something. Yep. And fundamentally, like, the rest of our society just doesn't have the, like, ability to do that. Or the sense of urgency. Like, it's dangerous. We are not safe. We are not. We're not. The illusion of safety is what we have. And if you, like, it's just it's much easier to not believe. It just allows you to continue with the status quo, and the status quo is not working. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't. And it's like for this to have happened this many times with this many women and the same man and every single time the same outcome. Yeah. It's like uh, maybe a few months in jail. Uh, Maybe you go to an anger management course because we know he's been through anger management. That didn't do anything. It didn't fix it. And like, what are we doing? The person that is committing the harm, though, like, here's the problem. The person that is committing the harm has to, A, feel that the harm they're committing is wrong. And B, want to stop. Right. And he fundamentally does not. Right. And I think that, like, we talked about this with experts as well, that, like, 
There are people that I believe should be sequestered from society because they cannot change and they will continue to be violent. For the people who can and do and really genuinely want to change, we've got to get better at intervening. We've got to get better at intervening and repairing those harms and breaking those cycles. Mm -hmm. But there are some people I do think, I'm sorry, like this is like the, the carceral feminist in me that I think that there are some people that just can't change, that won't change. And the only other and the only option at that point is prison. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what your philosophy of of what the purpose of the system is, because it's like, if the purpose of the system is to stop every incidence of violence and and prevent it, then yes, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But if the purpose of the system (laughs) is actually just to serve as a deterrent and an example of what could happen to you, and the rest of the time we don't really care, then there is no point of it, really. It's just like a kangaroo court. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I think it is now because these cases, again, for whatever reason, it's like, these are horrendous, violent crimes. Listen to that person. Listen to Carissa. Talk about that. It's a horrifying experience. It's a harrowing tale of survival. She's lucky to be alive. And there's no jail time. They never even they investigated. Didn't even, they didn't even bring charges. They didn't call her mom. They didn't even call her mom. She What she was saying in the middle of that was that my mom was always on track for all of us. She always had was on the block for me because I was the youngest. She was used to getting phone calls about us. She never mentioned it. It was a, he's gone back to Oklahoma get this off my desk case closed well it's not my problem because he doesn't live here victim is gone she left so there's no harm done because she's not here no harm no foul it's just it's an absurdity so carissa represents an important corroborating witness because she's never spoken to kara or Kristen, or heather or marcy or ember or tisha or kember or brandy or dawn or Misty, or Amber, or any other victim or survivor. Carissa told two people about her abuse, her mother and the Eureka Springs police, and that's how it stayed for nearly three decades until we contacted her. You will ultimately have to make your own judgments about who you believe in this podcast. But as for me, I believe the women. I believe the women who have come forward and filed for protective orders or police reports. I believe the women who haven't, who simply relied on their own networks for support. Until society is willing to believe women as fervently as we do, we'll be here, making podcasts and highlighting the audacity of systems that ignore, discount, discredit, and disbelieve survivors who are crying out for change to how we respond to domestic violence. Believing survivors, be they men, women, or non-binary people, is the first step to overhauling a system in desperate need of reform. When we fail to take survivors seriously and to adequately investigate and prosecute their claims, we leave them powerless, and people who feel powerless resort to taking measures into their own hands. Next time on Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, the series finale. We're taking you through the efforts these women have made to seek systemic justice and where they turn when the system fails them over and over. How big is the box of acceptable behavior? What happens when you cross a boundary or employ the tactics of your abuser to level the playing field? Could you become a monster in your own right? You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. 
I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.